Thank you for listening to City Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit us at borocitychurch.com. That's B-O-R-O, citychurch.com. Additionally, if this podcast has been an encouragement to you, would you please email us to let us know? You can email us at sermons at borocitychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Father, I thank you for the way that we got to sing those truths this morning, primarily in a major key with rejoicing, with hope, with joy. But Father, I thank you for the minor key that you played on the cross so that we could sing those words. Thank you for being forsaken so that we can say, Hallelujah, I'm not alone. Thank you for being exposed with no comfort so we can say that you are our comfort. Father, today will you show us the severity and the weight of the cross, but also the extreme hope that we have because of what you did for us in Jesus Christ. I pray that in his name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as you're being seated, uh, if you would either direct your attention to the screen or to one of these red bookmarks, we've been going through the Apostles' Creed, and uh, we're going to recite that now. We're uh, about almost halfway through it. And so if you would, join me, and we will say this aloud in unison. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Dustin. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm privileged to get to preach to you this morning. In 1971, a college professor who also was moonlighting as a sporting goods salesman was in need of a new logo. He happened to meet a graphic design student at the school where he taught, and she was looking to earn a little extra money. So he asked this young, young student if she would be willing to do a little freelance work, to come up with some designs that he could probably attach to the renaming of his company. The logo that she ended up creating is now worth literally billions of dollars. The first version of the Nike swoosh that Carolyn Davidson completed, she did so in less than 18 hours. And Phil Knight, the one of the owner, original owners of Nike and longtime owner of Nike paid her only the modern day equivalent of about $200 to do it. Now, since she's been well compensated as a thank you 
in other ways, by receiving shares and so forth. But that symbol, the swoosh, it dons the chest and the feet of massive amounts of people around the world. Now, for those of you that know your ancient Greek religion or history, you know that Nike is the name of the Greek goddess for victory. And that's why the company is so named Nike, because that is what they want to embody. They want to embody victory, strength, and domination. And in a lot of ways, that is exactly what Nike represents as a corporation. Now, they are known for pursuing the greatest athletes, like LeBron and Serena, just to name a few, to wear their logo. But of course, if you look around your campus, or at the gym, or even around in this room, got one right there, bingo, (laughs) you'll notice that it's not only pro athletes that are wearing that swoosh. The former athlete, wanting to find purpose on the intramural court, or outside the cubicle, they're wearing the swoosh, just like the kid at the neighborhood community center who's working hard to make it out of the neighborhood, they put on the swoosh as well. And the mom who wants to appear as though she just came from a yoga class (laughs) also puts on the swoosh. You see, the swoosh is synonymous with winning, with strength and domination, unless you ask Zion Williamson or Duke. If you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up. <laughs> now, Christianity has a logo or a symbol that we most identify with. It's also widely adorned among people from all strata of society and around the world. But in stark contrast, this symbol is synonymous just as much with losing as it is with victory. The cross is that symbol. And it represents the core of what it means to be a Christian. Like the old hymn states, the cross is an emblem of suffering and shame. And it's the modern equivalent of wearing a noose or an electric chair. This swoosh of victory seems to cast a long shadow of death. The cross is essentially a logo of loss, not victory. The cross embodies both the essence of our faith, but also one of the greatest paradoxes. God somehow gives us the greatest victory by taking on his greatest loss. And yet, as ugly and shameful as it might be, It's also the logo for losers that gives us the greatest sense of beauty and boldness. Today, we're going to go to the cross of Christ to understand the essence of what it means for us that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. For in so doing, we'll see the central ugliness of what it means for us as human beings and the core beauty of God's loving justice. We're going to be reading from John chapter 19. If you want to go there, if you have your Bible, we're going to read several passages from this, and I'll kind of direct you as we skip around. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can read it on the screen, but there's also free ones in the back. And if you don't own one, we'd love to give you one. So please, even right now, get up and go grab one. But we're going to look at John chapter 19, 
starting in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted it together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and were slapping him, slapping his face. Now skip down to verse 14. It was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. Then he told the Jews, Pilate did, Here is your king. And they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Then he handed him over to be crucified. Then they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went out to what is called Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, with Jesus in the middle. Now skip down to verse 28. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his leg since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. Verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. They took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the fragrant spices, according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. This is God's word. The crucifixion, crucifixion accounts appear in all four Gospels, and they are brutal, physical, and emotional depictions of the suffering of our Savior. It's been depicted in various art forms over the years. And many of you may remember when Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ film came out about 15 years ago, what an uproar there was. It was wildly successful at the box office, made a lot of money, and yet no one wanted to see the movie a second time. It was just as much gruesome as it was controversial. 
the overwhelming response to that movie showed very clearly that pretty much no one, whether you're Christian or you're not a Christian, no one enjoys seeing a beaten and bloody Jesus. And yet, one of the most historically agreed upon facts about Jesus' life was that he died by crucifixion in A.D. 30. Now, it's what we do with that fact, that's where all the disagreement comes. The question, why? Why did he die that way? Why did he have to die that way? But we need to see the crucifixion for what it was because the cross is offensive, but our sin is even more offensive to God. You see, the cross has always turned people away. Each of the crucifixion accounts are very difficult to read, much less imagine. And just as Christianity took root after Jesus' resurrection, the cross was a very hard pill for other people to explain and to swallow as well. The Jews were offended by the cross. Jesus' most frequent description of himself was son of man. If you don't know, that's a phrase that the prophet Daniel uses. In Daniel chapter 7, he has a vision where he sees this powerful one coming down, descending from heaven with authority, with glory, and he's here to establish an earthly kingdom. Jews associated the Son of Man with power, not weakness. So for Jesus to claim that he was the Son of Man and then wind up dead on a cross was inconceivable to Jews. The cross offended them because Jews thought God's kingdom was supposed to begin in authority, not by losing their Messiah on a cross. The Romans were confused that the hero of this new religion would be celebrated by dying a criminal's death. To them, there was no glory in it at all. Heroes aren't supposed to die that way. They're supposed to rise to power, not descend to a criminal's death. And to understand why both groups were shocked and confused by a crucified Jesus, we ought to know just what was so horrible about crucifixion itself. The Romans probably didn't invent crucifixion, but boy, did they make it popular. It was the most severe form of capital punishment imaginable. And it's been argued that crucifixion is one of historically the most extreme forms of execution ever devised, not just because of the pain that it caused, but for the prolonged torture that it inflicts on its victims. And crucifixion was not just about capital punishment. It was about complete torture and total humiliation. Its victim was publicly displayed, not behind some giant wall where nobody could view it. They were openly tortured and killed. Victims would be nailed completely naked to their cross in a location where people couldn't help but pass by or see them from a long way off. Their shame, their exposure, and their torment would be put on full display. And it was not uncommon for those crucified to hang on for two to four days even in that agony before they finally would die. 
And that's the kind of death that Jesus experienced. And mind you, he experienced that, as in the passage that we just read, after he had been beaten and slapped, flogged, spit upon, and forced to carry his own cross, which he could not even completely do, because in another account we find out that Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry Jesus' cross the rest of the way. He got to the cross weak and weary. Jesus knew and even predicted that his mission was to die a sacrificial death. He knew he was going to the cross. But why all the blood? Why all the torment? Why the brutality? I could point to a lot of different places, but Isaiah makes it very clear. Chapter 53, verse 5. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. Crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. And Peter said, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So as you imagine the ugliness of Jesus upon the cross, you are getting a glimpse into the terrifying and destructive effect of sin. Our sin is an absolute offense to a holy and righteous God. And Jesus died on the cross for our sins. The entirety of scripture points to the awful, insidious, destructive nature of sin. It separates us from God. It hides God's face from us. It mars the way that we view God and the way that we view other people. It turns the good creation that God has made into a broken mess. And whether actively or passively, our sin is what causes us to rebel against God and his goodness and sovereignty. So why all the brutality? Jesus needed to die a shameful, brutal death, paradoxically, so that we could see that God is both loving and just. See, on the cross, God is able to show both love and justice. These qualities both define God's strength, not his weakness. And that's what we actually find on the cross He's loving enough to want to provide a covering for your sin and mine. But he's also holy and just and he has to penalize it. What we see on the cross is the utter seriousness of God's love and justice. And the word for that is atonement. Atonement means a covering, covering up. Jesus on the cross is acting to cover our sin. And he is acting as our substitute That's why it's said that he is our substitutionary atonement. He stepped in in our place and he took on the full measure of God's wrath toward our sin on himself. And through Christ's death and seeming loss, he triumphs over all evil. It is a bloody mess and it had to be. He was bearing the fullness of penalty for our sin. So this is my challenge to you. Don't look away. Behold the man upon the cross. 
As John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The thing is, is we don't want to look at Jesus exposed in the cross because we don't want sin and selfishness exposed in us. It may or may not surprise you that there are people that actually believe that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. It's what's called the swoon theory. That somehow Jesus swooned, faked his death, or was helped to fake his death, and it wasn't really him on the cross. In that, the detractors are trying to explain away how Christ's body was somehow either replaced on the cross with a lookalike, or maybe he was just playing possum, and he wasn't really dead, so somehow to justify him being alive later. And I would guess that most of you in this room probably don't ascribe to that theory. Like I said, it's, Jesus' death is one of the most widely accepted things about him. But unfortunately, we have our own other ways of blocking our vision to see Jesus on the cross and to explain it away. Perhaps you're covering up the cross by rejecting God through rebellion or you're refusing God through your religion. And that's what we see in this account too. In both the Romans and the Jewish leaders. The Roman centurions in their irreligion, in their rebellion against God, are too distracted during the crucifixion to actually look behind them and see what's happening. I didn't read this passage before, but look in verses 23 and 24 in John 19. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. Nice little Nike pullover. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. They were too distracted in that moment to notice what was happening. They were just doing their job. As horrible as a job as it was. And they're trying to get all the fringe benefits they possibly can in that moment. Taking a man who's about to be dead, taking his clothes away and dividing them up. What they don't see is their sin. Yet they're sinfully coveting Jesus' stuff at the foot of the cross instead of longing for the salvation that can be found there. And they keep Jesus just out of view so that they can get some more articles of clothing. And during this whole debacle, the religious leaders are clinging to their own distractions. Look back in verse 31. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a special day. Interestingly, these religious leaders made a direct connection between Roman crucifixion and the obscure command in Deuteronomy chapter 21 which says, if anyone is found guilty of an offense deserving the death penalty and is executed, and you hang his body on a tree, tree there, they equated with cross. You're not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but to bury him that day, for anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not defile the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. What's ironic is that the Jews directly correlated crucifixion with hanging on the tree in this verse. 
and in their religious zeal, they're wanting to preserve their view of God by sticking to the rules. Blatantly overlooking the fact that that they are killing someone who did not deserve it. As verse 22 says. Nor are they viewing Deuteronomy 5.17 which says do not murder. But they still had their religion though. They clung pretty tightly to that. Jesus' death that, mind you, they were partially responsible for pursuing was now an inconvenience to them. It was going to mess up their religious plans. They're wanting to attempt to move Jesus out of their way so they can get on with their festivities. What about you? What about you? Are you trying to cover up or block out the fullness of the cross? Are you trying not to see what Jesus was doing on the cross to expose your sin and your guilt? I think a question that we all need to ask ourselves is whether we're clinging to something besides our Savior on the cross. What are we really consuming? What are we really worshiping? Jesus' death is exposing our sins and we're trying to avoid him on that cross so that we don't have to see it so are you a consumer like the centurions are you just showing up here because you just want to get filled up but you don't want to look at a bloody jesus too long don't tell me too much about my sin i don't want to feel bad but i'm just here to take what i can get Are you using serving with us as a church or in some other way as some sort of release valve for your self-centeredness? Or are you wasting your time, your money, your mental energy on frivolous things from binging on Netflix or throwing your money away on playing Fortnite or spending your emotions on Facebook and Instagram just hoping for another like and another heart? Or are you clinging to religiosity like the Jewish leaders were? Are you so wrapped up in your routines that you don't really see Jesus? The things that should be pushing you closer to Christ, are they? Do you actually have a relationship with him, not just about him or for him? Is there witness to your relationship? Is your prayer... Your time in the word pushing you to adore Christ more or just know more stuff about him? Are you a belligerent religious person at your work or in your home, always sticking to the rules but not about the relationship that Christ has given you? Or are you thinking that somehow, somehow, your good will somehow outweigh the bad you've done and you don't really need Jesus on that cross? Because I'm not as bad as like these other people are. These questions, listen guys, these questions we all need to ask ourselves. Because God forbid we walk away from a crucified Jesus just to get right back into our cars and go right back to our consumerism and our fake religion. 
Don't miss the miraculous grace of seeing Jesus and the fullness of your sin exposed on the cross. Don't be like the centurions that walk away with a bag full of clothes and receipts, but miss Jesus. And don't be like the religious leaders who walk away to another Bible study or an opportunity to serve someone, but miss Jesus. Stop covering up your sin. Stop covering up Jesus on the cross who's exposing your sin with your rebellion and your religion. And start letting Jesus on the cross cover up you. Don't cover up what you see and hear from the cross. Don't cover your eyes. Don't cover your ears. Listen to Jesus' voice as he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's forgiveness available because of what Christ did on the cross. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? God abandoned Jesus on the cross so that he could rescue you from your sin. And because of what he has done, only he can utter the words, it is finished. Do you believe that this morning? I hope you see Jesus on the cross for who he really is and what he's really saying about your sin as he absorbs God's full wrath for you. And his atoning sacrifice, and only through that, you can know full peace. You can know what humility is really like. And also experience boldness in a way that you can find nowhere else, not by putting on a jersey or doing some other crazy stuff to keep you in your consumerism and religion. And then, and then, and only then, through the cross, the emblem of our shame becomes our victory symbol. And you see it, you see it at the end of this passage that we read. There's this peace and humility and boldness that you see a glimpse of at the very end of this passage where Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come forward without any fanfare, without any attention grabbing, but they boldly go to embrace a dead Jesus. Now we know very little about Nicodemus, a little bit from John chapter 3. We know even less about Joseph. But what we do know is that they follow Jesus enough to be the only ones, the only ones to step forward and claim Jesus so that they could bury him properly in a tomb. And this points me to believe, and many other people to believe, that Nicodemus, the challenge that he received directly from Jesus, that he must be born again, in John chapter 3, maybe he finally understood what that meant. Maybe Christ's death brought a finality to his understanding of what it means to die so that you could be born again. At a time when all the other disciples cut loose and ran away, these two men accepted Christ's death and they honored him by embracing him. You know, Nike has become so synonymous with victory, so synonymous with success, that they typically only choose athletes and others and extend an endorsement deal to them because it makes them look good. It makes the company look better. 
And just as quickly, they can diss the people that make them look bad. See, they're quick to approach the the pro athlete, the world-renowned soccer player, basketball player, tennis player. They go to the high-profile universities to try to persuade them to use their logo on their jersey. And the professional leagues as well. But Nike as a business is a self-serving company. They extend the contracts to people and to companies and leagues and teams so that they can preserve their goodness. So they can have that fed back into who they think they are. But they also very quickly end contracts with those who make them look bad. Like many other companies, they try to quickly bury the stories about athletes with whom they've associated themselves with as quickly as they can so that they can preserve their brand and identity. But not so with Jesus. He freely gives his logo away. Whoever wants it. And though Nike might shun the person who turned out to be a murderer who wore their logo or the child abuser that used their logo, or the cheater that used their logo. Christ does not extend goodness without paying for it, but he doesn't withhold his love either. And so I want you to know, regardless of what you've done, Christ's grace is extended to you. It's not being held with a closed fist like the contract of a Nike executive would hold one. His hands are open, and there's victory to be received once you understand what Christ really lost for you and me. You see, Jesus didn't treat the offense of your sin like a Nike executive would treat the scandalous actions of a star athlete. God also is not going to cut you loose quickly because of your sin. He will try to persuade you through his spirit to turn back to him to continue looking at him on the cross. That's what I did for you. I still love you. Turn back to me. I'm not gonna leave you or forsake you. And through faith in Jesus, he eliminates the penalty and the debt that you have to pay, that I have to pay because of our sin. And through Jesus, we get access to the Father. So, Christians in this room, do you really believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? Or do you think that somehow Jesus didn't take all of your punishment on the cross and that somehow you still have to pay for it? Yes, he will discipline you. He will. But that's out of his love. The punishment's over. You're free to walk in love and grace and understanding his mercy. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, can you believe that? Can you believe that there is a God who is that good, who's that loving, but also that just, to absorb the wrath for your sin on himself? He took that for you. Can you believe that? Will you believe that? You see, the cross bids us to come to God totally exposed and yet totally accepted in Christ. 
Because Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, there is a finality to our sin. And we can know it. God's love and his justice meet to deliver us and give us peace beyond measure. False saviors can be tossed aside at the foot of the cross like a used Nike pullover. And then your arms are free to embrace a savior who was pierced for your transgressions. He experienced our defeat to give you victory. The emblem of suffering and shame became our symbol of victory. See the man upon the cross. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Today, do you rejoice in that he takes away yours? Let's pray. Father, in the cross, we see the pinnacle of your displeasure toward our sin. And there is no victim greater than yourself on the cross. You absorb that for us. So, Father, in this room, I ask for each person that you would help us to understand your immense love and your immense justice and what you put on Christ so that we could have access to you. For the Christian in this room who is struggling with sin and shame and guilt, I ask that you would help them fix their eyes on the cross to know that their sin is fully paid for. And there's forgiveness. And there's freedom that comes from knowing that and being able to confess that to people. So Lord, I pray that hidden sin would be exposed like Jesus was exposed on the cross. Would you bring that to the surface without fear of punishment? Because you've taken that. Give boldness today. And for anyone who is listening to this and is considering Could God be this loving? Has he made a way for me? Lord, by your spirit, would you tell them yes? And would you help them to know they can turn and trust and follow you? Will you give them the assurance of your victory? Father, will you do that today in Jesus' name? Amen. Before we sing again, I want to ask you, if there are things that you want to confess, you want to talk to someone about, find someone. You Find me, find anyone you've seen on the stage, someone you know, have a conversation. Whether that's just to talk through what's going on and what God's doing in your life. Or perhaps, perhaps you're someone who walked in here today not thinking that God was good enough to save even you. And perhaps maybe some of your questions are being answered. Maybe you have more. But if you've placed your faith in Christ today, we ask you, would you tell someone? You can do that in person. You can do that on the cards that are found in your seats. 
So as we worship, let's continue to be thankful and grateful in the way that we sing and respond to what Christ has done for us. Let's worship.